Sure to say that, so. It's a brisk fall day in Grove City, Ohio, a Franklin County suburb of Columbus. John Bays arrives home with his mother, Naomi, and his teenage daughter, who is holding a large mailed envelope. Daughters. Yep, here it is. This is the acceptance letter. Uh, uh, my daughter's. Um, she got a $22,000 a year scholarship offer wow. to Capital. She, she got the presidential uh, award. <laughs> wow. Wow, congratulations. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> I know. And that's even before we turn in any uh, financial aid. Uh, <laughs> She's all excited. <laughs> Here it is. Here it is. <laughs> Bass is a large man with a soft-spoken voice. His black-rimmed glasses square on his face above his gray mustache. And even though right now he's thinking about the future and his daughter soon going to college, his past has a way of sneaking back into his head, specifically his hometown, Willersburg, Ohio. I mean, we used to literally have no traffic lights. And then I remember when I got in high school, they put in the traffic light on Old Gallia and uh, Center Street. And I couldn't believe we had a traffic light. <laughs> but, uh, and um, I mean, like, I think they're graduating about 180, 190 uh, uh, class now. And when I graduated in 82, it was only 139. How many would have been in your graduating class, Mom? 100. Under 100. And she would have graduated in 66 if she didn't decide to have me. She loved my dad. Had to, had to leave the house and get married. So <laughs> thank God she did or I wouldn't be here. So The Berg, as locals like to call it a small town along the Ohio River on the southern tip of the state, a town where, unfortunately, at times for Bays and his younger brother Robert, everyone knew everybody. I remember me and uh, older, when I got older, you know, seven or eight years old, I couldn't do anything wrong in the neighborhood without somebody coming up and telling Grandma, you know what Johnny and Robert's been doing? <laughs> he has mostly fond memories of his hometown. He played on the football team coached by local legend Ed Miller, who in 1989 brought the town a state championship. He still keeps in touch with classmates he graduated with. But when one mentions a specific day, a specific time, emotions come rushing back. That is April 23rd, 1968, 4.05 p.m. I mean, I can remember clear as day, Grandma being convinced that it was God that had kept that tree from crushing her house instead of the tops of the branches just coming down and kind of tugging at the gutters, you know. Um, so that's what she believed, and I grew up believing it too because Grandma's right, you know. So, uh, and uh, so I was off. Like I told you that other time that we talked, had her house been smashed and we didn't have a place to live, who knows what our childhood could have been like if we had to move another town and, and met different, had different teachers and whatever, you never know. So your life turns out one way, but it could have been another way. And so had her house been crushed, anything could have happened. 
Welcome to the second two-part episode of Time Stop. I'm your host, Liam Niemeyer. This series explores two stories surrounding dates in history. Dates in history that changed an individual, impacted a community, and transformed the lives of many. This episode is the first half of a story about a natural disaster that took place almost 50 years ago. This story considers three experiences, the family that survived, the family that saved, and the family that grieved. This is the story of how the day, April 23rd, 1968, forever changed the lives of these families. For many Americans, 1968 was turbulent and destructive. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th that year, and the Tet Offensive in Vietnam had continued to smolder. But in a small place like Williamsburg, it was a community relatively unaffected by the outside world, surrounded by rolling hills, away from everything else. There was Littoral's grocery store, McCarty's little grocery store, Williams's furniture, and the donut shop was on Center Street in the Berg. And of course, Pops drive in and restaurant. My mother worked there for years. I was a car hop there for a little while. That's Naomi, John Bay's mom. Naomi and her extended family and mother all lived in a modest ranch-style home on Granite Street near downtown Moonersburg. It was the 50s and the 60s, and rock and roll was a big hit. Muscle cars, we call them muscle cars now, they were a big hit. Um, it's just a small-town atmosphere. It's everybody knew each other, and would help each other and everything. There wasn't much at Willisburg back then. And that was Donna, Naomi's sister. Donna was a high school senior working at the most popular and only restaurant in town, Pop's Drive-In and Restaurant. It was the de facto gathering place for the town. What kind of food do you remember now? Like, <laughs> oh gosh, they had, they had a, where you go eat in the dining area and have dinner or whatever. And then there was a drive-in. And I was a car hop there from 66 to 68, and they had French fries, French fries with gravy, hamburgers, hot dogs, footers, all of it was um, hot dog sauce, pies, cobblers, everything was made from scratch. Everything. Nothing was, you know, pre-prepared. April 27th, 1968 started like any normal day for Donna. It was finally springtime, and the trees and flowers were just starting to bud. It'd been real cool spring. We had a real hard winter, and the spring had been so cool that they were still running the furnaces at the school, and we were wearing our winter clothes and our winter coats. But it warmed up so much that day, the school building got so hot that they opened all the windows and all the doors trying to let some air because we were burning up. And so I had to walk home because I lived in a half a mile of the high school. And when we were walking home, we were looking at the sky, and the sky looked sort of weird, but we got out. You know, it's just going to be a storm or something coming up after a while. The clouds were sort of rolling, 
you know, like this, and um, it was sort of like turning a little bit dark, you know, and it was, it was just so warm. We were carrying our coats home and everything. Donna arrived back home on Granite Street, where Naomi was doing laundry. Four-year-old John and his brother Robert were chasing each other in the living room. Her mom, Hazel, a cook at Pop's restaurant, hadn't come home from work yet. We were running around the um, living room looking out the windows and then going out on the front porch. And if you look um, west towards Siderville and New Boston, you, we saw the sky green over across the river into Kentucky. Um, and uh, we knew something was, and we were young, we didn't understand, but the skies aren't normally green. <laughs> so, and, uh, and then like on the outside of the greens, it was like this odd looking yellow. And so uh, we knew something was going on. And then when it started getting real windy, and we could hear the tree a creaking. When I got home, I called my boyfriend's mother, but while we were on the phone, the sky outside was getting like darker and darker, and then with all this static come on the phone, so we got off. And then I no sooner got off the phone, and uh, I saw, saw the wind blowing really hard. I had three little kids, done laundry, me and my mother, and uh, the wind was uh, blowing the rain sideways, and I went outside to get the laundry, and I happened to look in front of me, and there was uh, roofing swirling all around me, and I'd put those clean clothes over my head and dash to the house make sure that the kids was good. My sister was there. Johnny and Robert were running around. They were just little things. And uh, I had them sit down on the couch. And then I ran upstairs and got Denise. She was just a baby. She was, she was only seven, eight months old. And I ran and got her out of the crib. Well, just as soon as I got her out of the crib, a tree come down on the side of the house. And it was blocking the window. So. Got back downstairs and the boys were crying. And I said, oh, it's just a storm. You know, what? just sit still, just stay on the couch and I'll sit here with you and, and uh, it'll pass over. Well, by that time, Naomi came back through the back door and then it's, it was real dark and it started hailing and everything. And the temperature dropped real fast. It dropped, I think it got like 80 that day, and it dropped like to 40, just like that. And then and then we heard the sound like a freight train was coming right toward us. Johnny and Robert started crying real hard. And they were crying so hard they couldn't talk. I said, what's wrong? They were pointing at the front door and the tree had come down and come through the porch room. Donna and Naomi scrambled to get the crying kids in their small basement before things turned to worse. And then that's when all heck broke loose. The shingles went flying off the house, and there was one tree after another was falling. 
And when it was over, we just walked outside and looked around. It's just, you know, shingles and trash and, you know, just different things laying everywhere. And the trees were down. And Their home was still intact somehow. A small sapling fell on the side of their home, and a larger 40-foot tree had crashed through their front yard, branches dangling through the broken window. Shingles and debris lay in the yard. Although the five family members were unharmed, the status of family members, including their mother, was unknown. I forgot the kids calmed down. I told my sister, our mother was a cook at Pop's restaurant. I said, well, I'm going to walk over and check on Mom. And so I walked over there, but on the way, people were stopping and everything. And they said that uh, there was a funnel cloud come across from Kentucky across the Ohio River, and it split in two. The Wheelersburg tornado, as it's historically known, was rated an F5 on the Fujita scale, the strongest rating that could be issued at the time with estimated sustained winds of at least 261 miles per hour. Winds that carry entire houses. The tornado cut a 400-yard-wide path up Dogwood Ridge Road, splitting the town in half. If you were on one side of the ridge, your house was still intact. But if you were on the other side... I can remember when I saw the ridge, I, it just was like a bomb had gone off. The houses were just obliterated. You know, just wood and stuff laying here and there. They found stuff that the tornado had blown quite a distance from Willisburg in the woods and stuff. They found people's pictures and different things, bed clothes, and they just found a bit of everything. Donna didn't know this at the time, but over 500 homes were damaged or completely gone. 92 people were injured. The wind had overturned 10 train cars off the nearby tracks, tossing another car into a ditch. It's rumored that people even witnessed the tornado part the Ohio River like Moses, exposing the Ohio Riverbed. As Donna walked, ambulances were wailing in the distance, and massive trees blocked the road. Donna reluctantly turned back home, but she was greeted by the first piece of happy news. By then, Mom had made it home because she didn't know how we was, you know, uh, and everything. So it was a welcome homecoming that evening. Yet there were still family members unaccounted for. This was the late 60s. Cell phones didn't exist. And their sister Ruth, their mother-in-law, Grandma Baldridge, and their nephews and nieces lived up on Dogwood Ridge. They couldn't sleep that night. We were so worried and we spent the whole night worrying up and down and everything because things were very unstable around there. And uh, we were just so worried that it's the first thing we thought of when we got up and got dressed and Mom made us have breakfast first, of course. What did you have for breakfast, do you remember? I think it was pancakes made on that. See, Mom's stove was gas, and it had a big cast iron griddle that fit over the burners and mom made pancakes for us have something hot on our way you know and there we go so donna and naomi in nothing but pedal pusher overalls 
decided to trek four miles up through devastated streets to Dogwood Ridge to check on family. They had to. Well, she was hesitant about us going, but we were the main two that we, if anybody was going to find out, it was going to be us. So uh, me and Donna did it. But there was a problem. But there was loot. People were coming up from other towns trying to loot the stores, well, the few stores we had in the burg. They were trying to loot them. And uh, so after the National it was martial law enforced, and after the National Guards got set up, we weren't even allowed to leave our neighborhoods. Like me and one of my girlfriends, we lived like catty corner at each other. And the National Guard was stationed on each corner. And they and they say, you know, they say, well, now girls, you have to go to her house. When you come back, you have to go back to your house, but you can't go any farther. Ohio Governor James A. Rhodes had dispatched the Ohio National Guard that night to ward off looters, blocking off streets. No one could get in or out. We were scared to death for those kids and everything, you know. And uh, so we just, it kind of made us mad that he wouldn't let us go check on the kids and everything. They just looked like they was in a, in a uniform. That's all we saw was, you know, they had shirt and tie and you could definitely tell they was in the military and they were serious, that's their job. And uh, we were serious of what we planned on doing too. Do not mess with the Finn girls. <laughs> Donna and Naomi knew the local hills and woods from playing in them as kids. So they took a gamble. They decided to sneak around the National Guard by cutting through a creek near an auto repair garage a few blocks west from their home. Parsons family had an old garage right there on Old Gallier Pike, a couple blocks down from the center part of Willisburg where the stores and stuff were at. And that's where we cut up. We got cut up in the creek then. We was walking alongside the creek. And uh, we thought, well, we can't. We thought sort of stay quiet and, and uh, not let the National Guard see us because they, they would have they hauled us right back home. <laughs> we went around Parsons Garage and through the creek and up the creek bank and Rolling. We were we had briar cuts all over us where we climbed through the briar. The briars were thick that getting through there because it never got used, you know. You know, when you get cut with briars, they it stings. We were pretty close to them. We kept our mouth shut until we got out hearing range, you know. Yeah, they were stationed right there. They were, usually when the National Guard did it, there was two at each, or two of each, that's being of each street. They cut through the creek, the cold water up to their knees. All the while, soldiers were patrolling the streets above. Eventually, they reached the ridge close to Grandma Baldridge's home. They thought their fears were realized. We got there, and there was no house there. Everything was just gone. So we really were frightened then that something had really gone wrong. You thought the worst. 
you know, you thought, oh my God, Grandma Baldridge and the kids are gone. And, uh, makes my heart beat faster right now it was sheer devastation that's why we of course being young and everything we had uh, we had lots of vim and vigor so attacking that hill was nothing you know compared to what we were feeling on the inside and we were we were crying the two turned around to try to get to their sister Ruth's place farther east, along where Dogwood Ridge and Hammerstein Road met. But the woods were all gone with this path. There was nowhere to hide. But uh, so we went on up on top of the hill and to where Hammerstein meets. There was two National Guard up there, and we couldn't hide from them because it's fairly flat up there. So our gig was up. We went on home, and of course we couldn't tell any good news as far as we know there was nothing they're just the house was gone and uh, our imagination was running wild you know they had no idea whether Ruth Mrs. Baldridge or any of the nieces and nephews were still alive for the second night in a row they went to bed terrified of the prospect that their family may be dead Ruth, Mrs. Baldridge, and the nieces and nephews did end up making it. Wayne, a brother, had a farm further up in the countryside that they were at. Yeah, we were lucky. We were in the right part of the burg. Well, I mean, where shingles got blown off and trees were down across the streets and everything, but we were lucky where we were at. It, it sounded like a corn de John, like one, if you're on one side of a Dogwood Ridge, you're fine if you're on the other side. Yeah, it was, it was chaos. That's true, because the houses on the right-hand side of Dogwood Ridge, they weren't even attached, but just right across the road, the subdivisions were just destroyed. It still, it boggles my mind about what the the sound of that train coming through is uh, very emotional. That I hear a train, there used to be some trains come, when we lived on Granite, uh, there was trains come through there. And it would remind me every once in a while of what it sounded like when that tornado spawned itself over into Willisburg. The town slowly started to rebuild its broken homes and broken identity. It had lost seven people during the storm, and every year during the anniversary of the tornado, John Bays would listen to his Sunday school teacher's sad account of not being able to save one of those who died. At the Cornerstone Church of the Nazarene, youth pastor Jack Riggs would tell his story. Every year around the anniversary of the um, of the storm, you know, we would say have a, a special prayer for the f families that were, you know, affected by it, and then we're still dealing with the aftermath. And um, you know, I didn't really r realize to the extent what Jack had gone through. You know, he had 
he had told some stories about saving that one person, but I didn't know that there was someone that wasn't saved. But when he would tell his story every year or whenever he did, um, you could hear it in his voice, what it meant to him, you know, and how it had affected him. And so um, knowing him through the years uh, has always been a special treat, you know. He's he's always been a great man. I mean, when you're a young kid growing up in that church, Jack Riggs was one of the head figures, so he was just one heck of a man. (laughs) Time Stop is reported, produced, and hosted by myself, Liam Niemeyer, advising from Dr. Elizabeth Hendrickson. If you liked this episode and the rest of this series, give us a rating on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcast. It helps other people like yourself find the show. The next episode will be the second and final part of the story, the story of Jack Riggs' rescue mission and the memories that still weigh on this 93-year-old's heart. For pictures from the Wheelersburg tornado and more exclusive content, go to timestoppod.com. And thanks for listening.